daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese Defense Minister stresses one China principle on the Taiwan question and elaborates on China's global security initiative at the 20th Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership has come into full implementation after taking effect in the Philippines. India's railway minister says an error in the electronic signaling system caused the fatal train derailment on Friday. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu delivered a speech at the 20th Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, stressing the One China Principle on the Taiwan question. China must be and will be reunified. It is the aspiration of our people and in line with the trend of our times. We will strive for the prospect of peaceful reunification with utmost sincerity and greatest efforts. But we make no promise to renounce the use of force. If anyone dares to separate Taiwan from China, the Chinese military will not hesitate for a second. We will fear no opponents and resolutely safeguard national sovereignty and territorial integrity, regardless of any cost. Li Shangfu also elaborated on the Global Security Initiative proposed by Chinese President Xi Jinping. He says the initiative seeks a new path featuring dialogue without confrontation and partnership over alliances. Now for more on this and for what's being talked about at the uh, Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, we're joined by Liu Kuangyu. He is a researcher at the Institute of Taiwan Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you, Dr. Liu. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you. This is Kuangyu. Now, uh, Doctor, why is Asia's security increasingly an important issue for the world? Uh, right. We, we see that the first thing is Asia's continued peace and development, which has enhanced its uh, global strategic importance. Uh, for many years, we see now that with 67% of the world's population and one-third of the world's economy, Asia's position in world strategy overall region is rising, rising, and is playing an increasingly important role in the process of uh, uh, multipolarization of the world and, democrat- and democrat- uh, democratization of international relations. It can be said that the peaceful development of Asia is closely related to the future and destiny of mankind. And on the other hand, Asia's security issues are extremely complex, uh, with hotspots and sensitive issues, as well as uh, as well as uh, ethnic, ethnic and religious conflicts and challenges posed by terrorism mm-hmm. and transnational crime, environment, environmental security, cyber, energy and resources security, and so on, are obviously on the rise and traditional non-traditional security threats are intertwined. We see that the new COVID epidemic is somewhat a demonstration of what conflicts in the region could entail and disruptive uh, disruptive supply chains and dramatic uh, uh, contraction of the global economy. Mm. And on the other hand, the war in Ukraine has also brought to a light and devastating consequences for Asia if the war were to break out in Asia. So the the security uh, situation in Asia faces faces many challenges at the time of, of change and the century of uh, uh, epidemics. So the forward-looking and realistic significance of Asia's security concept uh, put forward by President Xi Jinping seven years ago mm. have become more prominent, helping countries uphold multilateralism, safeguard justice, achieve peace, uh, stability, prosperity, and sustainable development in the region under this new situation. Mm. Now, uh, let's take a look at some of the details uh, of the speech by Li Shangfu. So in his yes. keynote, uh, he mainly talked about China's global security initiative, China's modernization, the one China principle, and also his suggestions on handle how to handle uh, U.S.-China relations. Now, why do you think he focused on these main areas? And what are the key messages he was trying to deliver? Well, as we can see, China has focused on the four-point security initiative and reiterated its position on Taiwan, the South China Sea, and the U.S.-China relations, mm. uh, demonstrating this firm will of strong determination of the Chinese military, of the, uh, military to defend our national interests. 
this this is the first time that Li Shangfu was invited to attend this meeting, and since he took office of the MOD this year, mm-hmm. and the first time that China made a full rep- uh, representation of the uh, since the, the release of the Global Security Initiative in February this year. So this shows that China is very sincere in using this conference, this platform to dis- discuss. Uh, for discussing security and communicating with all parties on an equal footing, and is also sincere in seeking dialogue, cooperation, and solutions for uh, pursuit for peace, prosperity, mm-hmm. and stability in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, by by elaborating on these issues, uh, China actually is arguing that Ch- China's efforts to maintain peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, uh, uphold one China principle and international order, and promote the peaceful development across relations and national and national reunification are important aspects of the Chinese style of modernization and also have positive important positive important implications for security and development of the world. So we suggest the U.S. should respect China respect China's position mm-hmm. and work with China in the same direction. Mm. Now, uh, Dr. Liu, you must have been, you know, reading the global coverage on this uh, yes. on this uh, dialogue. Um, and from from your observation overall, how do you think Minister Li's remarks uh, have been received at the meeting? Yes, uh, quite possibly. Uh, mm. uh, as far as I know, uh, I have read some details of the conference. Uh, the, uh, I, I see that during the Li Shangfu speech, there was a full house. Of audience and mm-hmm. even the hours of the conference have all uh, failed the listeners and and the long applause erupted at the end. Uh, the verbal feedback from multiple participants uh, participants were consistent with this response from the venue. Uh, we see that hosts, the UK uh, and and the Indonesia and another many other countries give uh, quite positive comments. And we also see that in this context, the U.S. Defense Secretary Austin's speech uh, he has to uh, slightly down some tone. Mm. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is inevitable. The China's new security initiatives will be welcomed. As Li Shafu spoke his, in his speech, China has the best record in peace uh, of peace uh, in the world for more than 70 years since its founding. Uh, the China's way of modernization is consistent with, prom- with uh, promoting common development, uh, maintaining world peace, and imp- improving global governance. Mm. Uh, I believe the representatives can see China's words in China's actions, so which is a, a fundamental reason for uh, why Chinese speech, China's uh, Chinese side speech uh, at this meeting can really win this, uh, this uh, applause and recognition of the representatives of of all the international parties. Mm. Now, uh, a key message on how to tackle security issues in Asia by Minister Li Shangfu is to prevent block confrontation with openness and inclusiveness. Now, um, what is new about it and how useful in reality is it in the region? Uh, We can see that in this meeting, China and the United States uh, actually elaborated two global security concepts, development path, uh, reflecting very uh, different security concepts. We have seen that the different interests in the strategies of, the strategies of various countries clearly indicated the views important stakeholders on security issues in Asia are increasingly uh, increasingly hostile and, and diverse. For influential for influential countries such as the United States, uh, as Australia, Japan, and India, regional security means containing China uh, or sec- securing their own hegemonic position. They see the Indo-Pacific uh, regional security architecture uh, as an adverse as an uh, adversary order mm. designed to contain China. The result, well, uh, increased tensions here. Most Asian countries, however, we see it are uh, developing countries, most uh, mostly established and developed from the colonialism mm. and during the hot and cold wars, and most of them have enjoyed dividends and for uh, globalization and right. peaceful development as well as the benefits of good, close relationship with China as well. Uh, and we see that Asia has long tradition of anti-colonism, mm. uh, anti-interference, and the pursuit of independence and non-alignment. There is limited expectation in the market for black confrontation in Asia, actually. It's mm. not too difficult for people to, in this region to decide which is right or wrong. Mm.
Well, an interesting thing happened、uh, at the Q and A session of、yes. uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Austin. Is that uh, uh, Senior Colonel Zhang Shi from China raised a question、mm-hmm. to him,、um, where he asked Austin whether U.S.-led mechanisms such as Quad and AUKUS contradicts with ASEAN centrality, which is something you know ASEAN、uh, is、yes. very proud of. So Austin、uh, answered by stress- stressing how AUKUS will promote security in Asia. Uh, what's your take? What's your read、um, into this overall, you you know, question and answer?、Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I know Professor Zhang,、mm-hmm. uh, and personally,、uh, I think he has raised a very good question and captured a very critical issue, which is the hypocrisy of the U.S. Asia Pacific policy.、Mm-hmm. As we can see, Professor Zhang's question is,、uh, has catched the point, while Austin's answer. Uh, is ev- evasive, right?、Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, despite Austin's statement that the U.S. U- the U.S. does not want to build an Asia-Pacific version of so-called NATO,、uh, the U.S.、Uh, has established a number of alliances systems under its leadership, including we see the the AUKUS,、uh, the Quad, and the Five Eyes Alliance, and so on, and has、uh, gradually increased the number of these alliances systems in Asia-Pacific region.、Um, and these alliances have gradually increased their weight in Asia. Uh, uh, the mechanisms claim to be、uh, committed to maintaining peace and, sta- and stability in this region, but however, they do not include any ASEAN members.、Mm. Uh, so we have seen a, uh, that the U.S. approach has led to war and chaos in Europe and Middle East over the past 40 years. Th- this is actually the same approach.、Mm. In contrast, over the past 40 years, the Asia region has been basically the most、uh, Peaceful and stable place in the world. This is which is why it has been able to achieve the economic、uh, development and prosper and prosper and、mm-hmm. prosperity. And、mm-hmm. see, and also China has long pointed out that from the Five Eye alliances, from the Quad, from the uh, uh, the the the, the Arcus and so on. This five four three two formation is by no means a gospel. Its purpose to purpose is to attempt to create the Indo-Pacific version of NATO. The maintenance of the U.S.-led hegemonic system and impact of,、uh, is the ASEAN-centric regional cooperation structure will be、uh, will be harmed. So this,、uh, I think,、uh, th- th- I think this is what Professor Zhang wants to elaborate,、mm. wants to find out、mm. uh, in his question.、Mm. Well,、um, when when asked about、uh, Japan's role on Asian security,、uh-huh. uh, Singaporean Defense Minister had an interesting comment.、Uh, here I quote: "What more from ASEAN member states and from Singapore's point of view would say to Japan? They sh- they would do. In my mind, the single most important thing that Japan、uh-huh. can do for the stability of ASEAN and Asia." Is to improve its relations with China. Now,、uh, Dr. Liu, we have about forty、mm-hmm. seconds before we wrap up.、Okay. But how do you read into that? Well,、uh, this is very harsh words. Actually,、mm-hmm. at present, we see that Japan is actually actively following the United States, charging ahead,、uh, intervening in the Taiwan issue, the Taiwan question, and then strengthening its military alliance with the U.S. against China. So, as we see, the Singapore's observation. Uh, suggest that they have to come to this view that Japan's risky moves, risky moves, are a major security threat to Asia. So I agree with the proposed,、uh, with their proposed path to solution,、uh, to which China has also a few additional points. First,、mm. uh, uh, must keep with keep their words strictly. Abide, their, abide by their four political documents between China and Japan. And second, they should learn from history. And、mm. third,、well. they should maintain current right <laughs> order of international. Indeed. Thank you, Dr. Liu.、Uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on you know how these、uh, security issues unfold in Asia. That was Liu Kuangyu with Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. With in-depth discussions on current affairs from across the globe, World Today brings you updates, analysis, and interviews on the day's top stories, 15 minutes a day, five days a week, at 7 p.m. Beijing time.
Moving on, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership has started to take effect in the Philippines. This marks the full implementation of the world's largest trade pact for all signatories. The pact has 15 members, including the 10 ASEAN countries plus China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea. The mega deal accounts for nearly 30 percent of the global population and one third of global GDP. For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, first of all, what do you think is the significance of RCEP on the、uh, regional economy of、uh, Asia Pacific? RCEP is the largest FTA nowadays. As we see that about 30% of the world's population and GDP and export are in this region. So it's a kind of a very important environment. Maybe we know that in this world we have. A、uh, lot of uncertainties, by challenges, by the different factors in the world. But we are trying to provide a better and more stable environment in this region. So it's a kind of a very important, a、uh, little bit smaller environment for the、uh, related stakeholders. We know that there are many companies who want to do some innovation, and some of them are trying to. Find out their potential customers. Well, in this market, they may try to find them to support the innovation.、Mm. And the trade pact will eventually eliminate up to ninety percent of the tariffs on trade between the member states within twenty years. So, how does it benefit for the participating countries? Actually, we know that ninety percent is a pretty, a pretty big number, as we、mm. know that so many. Uh, products that are related for the international markets, the consumers, the providers, and the different companies are trying to cooperate with each other. Well, we know that in this era of the globalization, a lot of intermediate products are provided by certain providers. So, for these companies, if they can buy some things with very cheaper cost without any tariffs or、uh, much lower tariffs, it will benefit them on reducing the cost of doing something. Actually, we know that there are still many. Many countries in this region, especially for the RCEP, like the Laos, the Cambodias, they are the least developed countries. So many companies, many consumers, and many people are suffering from the impact of the cost. So、mm-hmm. when we have lower tariffs, it will provide them with better life.、Mm-hmm. I think that is definitely good for them to improve their status for the development in this region. Mm. And what does it mean for the Philippines now? Is finally entering into force as a member of the pact. And how do you think the businesses in the Philippines, particularly those involved in the cross-border e-commerce, benefit from it? Actually, we know that the Philippines. I, I mean, some of them, some of the companies, some of the farmers, they are really worried about this impact of the RCEP. So actually, that is the reason why we see that、uh, it's the latest、uh, the the comer to the RCEP. So actually, I, I can understand that because they they are feeling that、uh, they are more.、Uh, Like、uh, impact and, and not only for the benefit by this trade agreement, but I can see that、uh, when the you know when other、uh, countries in RCEP are benefiting from this agreement, the Philippines, some of the companies are also、uh, trying to do to get that. So when the Philippines finally、uh, joined the RCEP, I, I think that there are more things that they can do to. Be integrated in this agreement, and this is、uh, definitely a very important thing for them to do business better. Because without this agreement, their、uh, their advantages is not that good with、uh, like many other members of RCEP. So even for the agriculture, for some of the products like for the daily used, the the、um, automobiles,、uh, motorcycles, and other instruments, when the companies are trying to buy them. And also, some from the consumers, they have to pay more. So with RCEP, I think that they can do that. As you mentioned about the e-commerce, we know that e-commerce is kind of a very important innovations to trying to bring our very strong support for the related stakeholders to reduce information asymmetry. So with e-commerce, I, I think that many companies are trying to improve the logistic support and trying to prove it more efficient by supporting the consumers to reduce the time that. 
has to be used on the way from the the warehouse to the market. Mm. Well, at this moment,、uh, one year after the trade pact enters into operation, how do you look at the impact so far? Do you see those enterprises, for instance, those export and import companies, utilizing this trade pact to its full extent? Okay, I don't think that、uh, you know the companies are so good at that doing、uh, these kind of things because as for a new agreement, although it's a kind of similar like the other agreements,、uh, free trade agreements, it is, do have some special requirements and do have some you know、uh, different kind of、uh, rules. So for the companies, they have to learn that before they can use that. Well, there are still many things that we can do to improve the. Awareness of the、uh, companies who want to use that. Some of them may even not have realized that it is important to use the agreement. So, with many trainings, with many communications、uh, by the、uh, Movcom or other organizations, we discuss many specific issues with enterprises. And I hope that it is not only our agreement to concern about the trading goods, but also many things to do with the trading services and investment, intellectual property. Rights protection and other areas, which is an、uh, integral uh, of uh, this agreement, trying to provide the enterprises with better environment.、Mm. And we've seen China's imports and exports with this country surged seven point three percent year on year in the first quarter, and this is accounting for more than thirty percent of、uh, China's total foreign trade. So, are these increased trade attributable to RCEP, or in what ways do you think Chinese enterprises can make Maximize the advantages of RCEP. Yeah, with、uh, RCEP, you know, it's a very important environment. As I said, it's kind of、uh, creating some different environment in this globalization age. And、uh, some companies are trying to rethink about what are the possibilities of putting its supply chain and how could that. Them to、uh, improve the resilience of the supply chains.、Mm. So actually, that、uh, they do have a better expectation about the market, and they do have better expectation about where they can produce their products and where they can sell their products to. So in this regard, I think that、uh, there are many things are under the procedure, and、uh, some of them are improving the the you know the trade of the goods,、uh, especially when the Companies are trying to work not only in one country; they are trying to be a multinational country. They are thinking about what they can do by internalizing the, you know, the original market in this company and trying to reduce the、uh, risks or impacts from the other side of the. Uh, market and not be affected by some other countries out of this region.、Mm. And you mentioned the supply chain. Actually, the world、uh, supply chain is under a lot of、uh, pressure, especially since the pandemic. So, what implications could the RCEP have on the、uh, worldwide supply chain? Actually, the supply chain is under pressure for the recent years by some kind of actions from certain countries, while also by the you know change of the technology and the market. I think that RCEP is providing our kind of very important mechanism to. To guarantee that the supply chain in these regions will be strengthened by the the rules of origins, by accumulation, by the value added, and when companies are putting their supply chains in these regions, it will reduce the cost of the logistics and while to provide a more stable,、uh, I mean, the political and also the operating environment for the companies to do business.、Mm. So in this regard, I think that it will put some strength of the confidence of the you know related enterprises and. Trying to accumulate more resources to improve the efficiency of the logistics. Mm. So another development on the parallel to RCEP. Just days ago, the trade ministers from 14 countries under the U.S.-led IPEF or the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework concluded a supply chains negotiation. So, Dr. Zhou, what do you make of that? And do you think the IPEF will affect the RCEP, if at all? Actually, in my personal opinion, I welcome any kind of actions that will、uh, strengthen the supply chains, trying to improve the resilience in the supply chain. So I haven't, you know,、uh, read carefully about all the、uh, all the context of、uh, the agreements that they have reached. But I have to say that、uh, if there are some 
kind of rules that will help the related stakeholders to improve the cooperation by reduce the risks in the supply chain in this region, I will say it's good. But if they are trying to put some kind of factor like the China, so-called China factor to trying to make some things to like the alley to fight against China, I don't think it's a good idea because without the, you know, the involvement of China, a lot of supply chains pressures will be more serious, like what happened in the United States for the inflation by the uncertainty. So the supply chain stability is a kind of thing that every country wants to strengthen, but in a way of a cooperation instead of trying to isolate the market by different kind of rules. That was Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Coming up, train services have resumed in northern India after three train collision killed nearly 300 people. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back after a short break. Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Train services have resumed in Balasore, northern India, after a three-train collision killed nearly 300 people. India's railway minister has recommended handing over the investigation to the Federal Investigating Agency. The minister says the incident was caused by an error in the electronic signaling system that led the train to wrongly change tracks. Search and rescue have ended after the deadliest train crash in the country in more than two decades. Authorities are collecting the bodies of the victims and helping to deliver them to their loved ones. Now, for more, we're joined by Muhammad Sakwib. He is Secretary General of India-China Economic and Cultural Council in New Delhi. Muhammad, thanks for. I'm sorry to have you talk talking to us on this、uh, big tragedy, but thank you for making the time for us anyway.、Um, first up,、uh, tell us how the country is holding up facing this tragedy.、Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It is a really sad moment、um, for Indians. Uh, people are sad. They are angry, and、uh, they are confused.、Uh, they really、uh, don't know what to do because I mean it has a it is a huge a big accident after I think 20 years 1985 we had worse than this, but after that it is a very very、uh, big accident and and people are really angry and confused.、Mm. Uh, inefficiency of railways uh, and and uh, carelessness of government at times. Mm. Now we we've noticed that、uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has traveled to the train wreck site and also talked to people,、uh, sending in his condolences.、Um, how what what how are people reacting to that? I have some like the, you know there are always、uh, mixed reaction.、Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are really、um, I mean. Happy about it. The prime minister is giving a special attention to it and going there and doing things and all. Some people think that I mean,、uh, maybe his being there, present at the at the site, or any VIP present there at the site does not really help、uh, in a sense that the attention of the of the、uh, people who are rescuing and, and doing other things and all it diverts、uh, towards the prime minister、uh, Modi.、Mm-hmm. But I think he's.、Uh, His presence there was a, a, a kind of a, a, an assurance to people that uh, uh, he is.、Uh, this accident has been taken very seriously, and government will do something and all. And he did make some announcement there, which were very important、uh, and comforting for the people.、Mm. Now, talking about that, Mohammed, what can we expect from the train company and also the government in terms of、uh, some sort of? I mean. The, they've lost their loved ones.、Uh, nothing can compensate for that. But、uh, what about uh, some uh, some sort of compensation for the people who have lost their loved ones? 
Yeah, I, I mean, uh, various uh, governments and agencies have uh, announced different uh, packages and all. For example, the local government, the provincial government of Orissa, mm. where the accident took place, they have announced uh, a, a half a million of rupees uh, to the dead, to deceased, and, and uh, 100,000 uh, rupees for uh, for the injured. Mm. The similar way, uh, the central government also announced a uh, 200,000 and 50,000 to dead and uh, injured uh, respectively. Uh, the railways have also announced a million dollar rupees for um, for the dead and uh, 200,000 for the injured. And uh, there was a, uh, apart from these, uh, there's a general insurance uh, people who are traveling, which which is between like 400,000 to 800,000 who travels by train. This is for for everybody insurance and all. So financially, I think they will, uh, I mean, money has been promised and all, but mm. I think when they get it, how they get it to prove that they have, I mean, they have been um, uh, died in extent. It is, I mean, getting compensation in India has, has always been a very difficult task. Anyway, mm. nobody is really, the people whose loved ones have died are not talking about the compensation or the amount and all. Mm. They are just angry and, and, and very angry uh, with the government, with the railways and all. Mm. Well, indeed. I mean, the money may, you know, provide, uh, make, you know, some part of their life easier. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, the healing will be a much more, you know, difficult um, and daunting task moving forward for these people. So, uh, Mohammed, uh, what about these two uh, railway companies? Uh, what what have been their track records um, in terms of safety and operation? You know, the two train, uh, railway company that run these two trains. I remember one's freight train and the one the other one is passenger train, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Actually, you know, the railways is a very, very important um, part of Indian life. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the track record of railways has, as far as safety safety is concerned, is not been, has been very good. You know, railway is under central government. This mm. is a government of India. We don't have a private railways, whether this is goods train or it is the passenger trains. So railway ministry is, is, is in charge of, of, of all the railways and all. So just to give you an idea, mm-hmm. that uh, only in the last year, in 20, I mean in 2020, 21, the latest data we have, more than 60,000 people killed in 18,000 railway accidents. Wow. And these are not the like uh, the, the accidents in the sense that the, the trains are, are bumping into each other. Uh, 68% of, of, uh, of the death uh, due to railways was like fall from the train mm. or collision of a vehicle with the train or, or, or maybe or just uh, people on the train but the sleeping or passing and all those things and all. Uh, although the train to train collision has been very little but this is if you can just see it that 16,000 people, 18,000 accidents mm. in, in one year is pretty big and if you look at the five years it has been more than 1,000, uh, 100,000 accidents mm. uh, in last five years, 17 to 2021. So probably safety is, is, is not a um, good point of Indian railways and all. Though it is a huge network, it is too big. Mm. Uh, I think uh, they are more prone to accidents and all because of the size and sheer uh, these things. But um, it is not really, there is nothing um, to talk about Indian safety, mm. uh, railway safety. Right. Well, that sounds rather challenging. Um, uh, one more thing. Um, can you uh, earlier you said, you know, train transportation is very important for Indian people. Can you elaborate more on that? I mean, do people how often or how frequently do people take the railway? Um, and how is it different among different groups of people? For example, students and uh, farmers and maybe business people traveling around the world. Do they how often do they take the train? Do they take uh, the plane? sometimes yeah uh, actually uh, train railways is the lifeline of of, uh, of for the passengers for the goods for businessmen mm. uh, for uh, small and pet- petty traders uh, for for everybody so you know like india has the the, the fourth largest uh, railway network in the world right we have some 
42,000 miles of, of, of uh, railway lines. Uh, so, I mean, you can, you can uh, visualize it like more than 13,000 mm. uh, passenger trains run every day. Oh. And almost 10,000 goods trains run every day. Right. So, 23 million passengers are traveling every day from one place to other places in all. <laughs> That's a lot and more than 3 million tons of goods mm. is, is, has been transported by the, by, 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 by the railways and all. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge um, uh, network and it is very, very important. You know, uh, so many people uh, who come, even the workers, the employees, mm. so they come, they will travel for two hours or an hour and a half from one city to other city to do, do their jobs. Mm. So people who are working in the ministry, they do not live in the in the in the in the in, the, in Delhi, for example, because it is expensive, it is metropolitan, and they will live in suburb or the close by B or C city. Mm -hmm. So they come every day. So they will travel two hours, two and a half hours every day, come back and go. Similarly, the petty traders they come to in the morning, they they they, they buy their stuff from the wholesale market in Delhi and go back to their cities uh, by train. So train has been a, a, a huge, you know, business promoter, employment generator, mm. uh, the, the, the job creator um, and uh, it, tourism promoter, uh, everything, you know. So it it's, is uh, railways in every, mm. every Indian's life and it is a very, very important part of, our, of, of Indian life. Well, suffice to say, you know, a railway is more like the lifeline for Indian people. Yeah. Um, yeah. One more question before we let you go very briefly. So this crash occurred as Narendra Modi's government is trying to modernize India's yeah. uh, railway network. How has their work been progressing? You know, uh, this is this is one of the discussions which has come up now that what Indian government is doing is they are working more towards adding more new lines, mm -hmm. uh, new trains and maybe modernization of, of the train as such. Right. And under this, uh, the, the self safety aspect of it mm. uh, or, or has been uh, left behind. So attention has not been paid towards the, the, the safety mm. and security of the railways rather than creating more trains, more attention has been paid to number of trains, the speed uh, and, the, and the locations where they will be connected and all. So probably, you know, uh, the, the, the visuals of railways have become more important than the than the safety and depth. It, the, the, the safety has taken a back stage. That's what the railway specialists have been talking these days after accident and all. Mm. So probably, you know, modernization uh, is taking place, but maybe, you know, there is a there is a uh, more attention towards the, 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 the speed and, and the coaches mm. uh, rather than rather than the safety. Indeed. Well, thank yeah. you, Mohammed, for talking to us. Do take care. And we hope that, you know, the people who have lost their loved ones can find some peace. I mean, if not now, but uh, in the future. That was Mohammed Saqib, he is the Secretary General of India's China Economic and Cultural Council in New Delhi. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Oman will form a joint Navy alliance for security protection in the Persian Gulf. Iranian Navy Commander Shahram Irani announced over the weekend that the naval coalition will also involve Bahrain, Iraq, Pakistan, India and other countries in the northern Indian Ocean. Iran's announcement follows decision last week by the UAE to quit a U.S.-led naval force. The Foreign Ministry of UAE said Abu Dhabi had withdrawn from the combined maritime forces that operate in the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf.
Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Tim Anderson. He's director of Center for Counter Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Thank you, Dr. Anderson, for talking to us. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Now, Doctor, let's walk back a、uh, walk back walk back a little, and first take a look at UAE's decision to withdraw from the combined maritime forces led by the U.S.、Um, when starting the mechanism, the U.S. aim was to counter Iran. So, how would you explain the background and the reasons for the UAE to pull out? Yes, that's a good starting point because just two days before the announcement from Iran,、mm. the UAE made this announcement, and、uh, to some extent, it's been、uh, contradicted by the US, but only to say that they consider the UAE still a partner. Now, let's remember the U- the the US、um, group that was put together was in the context of、um, general tensions with Iran, and the US wanting to place itself as a policeman in in the Persian Gulf. And this is something that dates back more than four decades. You may recall, after the Iranian Revolution, the Jimmy Carter, the president, announced what's called the Carter Doctrine, which is to say that the Persian Gulf is considered an area of national security interest to the United States of America,、mm-hmm. even though it's very thousands of miles away from the U.S. Of course, <laughs>、right. so the U.A.E. initially joined this group, but the fact that it withdrew before. The, and, and, and didn't stay in that group and join the Iran group at the same time, but it actually withdrew from that group. Is certainly should be seen as a, a an undermining of the U.S. pretensions to dominate the the security environment in the Persian Gulf.、Mm, U.S. pretension, as you put, that's a good way to put that.、Um, now, what about you know, Doctor?、Uh, what about considerations by Saudi? Uh, UAE, Oman, and others to team up with Iran for naval partnership in the region.、Um, how will this work towards their own national interests? Well,、uh, we don't have the detail of it yet, but、mm-hmm. of course, it's a、um, significant shift, and、um, it coincides with the the, the brokering of、um, relations between、uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, brokered by China,、mm-hmm. um, which. Sent really a ripple of um, consequent um, changes in the region. A number of things have been affected by that. You know, the Saudis have begun a sort of rapprochement with Syria.、Um, there is some shift in the Turkish stand on the occupation of North Syria. So there's a number of flow-on effects. I think we should regard this as one more. And really, the overall Iranian approach there, of course, we know the, Iran has a broader objective to expel the U.S. from the entire region.、Mm. But、um, this coalition doesn't necessarily assume that the other members are adopting that、um, that objective. It does suggest, however, that the other members are、um, seeing some consistency in Iran's idea that the security of the region should be procured by the nations of the region.、Uh, although Iran has mentioned that.、Um, Pakistan and India both have been included in this group. We haven't heard from Pakistan and India yet, but it's certainly a shift towards regional security and against the idea of the the security of the region being guaranteed by some big outsider.、Mm. Um, so, Doctor, what do you expect will be some of the main? I mean, we haven't heard some about some details as you hinted earlier, but what do you expect will be some of the main tasks of the new naval coalition? Doctor. Well, in the first,、mm. in the first instance, it, it, it、um, requires the coordination at a naval level between Iran and the, in, in the first instance, the the Arab states of the Persian Gulf, basically. Which, in other words, the major oil producers in that region there,、um, they are、uh, making a commitment, it seems, to、um, take care of their own security. They're certainly capable of doing it. Iran has a substantial naval force there, so. It leaves open the question of what the U.S. presence in the Persian Gulf is going to do, because of course the U.S. presence there is not,、uh, although it's stated as、um, securing shipping in the region, it's really、um, had this broader objective of trying to contain or undermine、um, Iran,、uh, linked into the the idea of Israel of trying to contain the influence of Iran in the region now too. So it seems that that's going to、um, uh, fall in many respects because. We have countries which were formerly close allies of the U.S.,、mm. in particular Saudi Arabia, but also the U.A.E.,、um, seeing some logic in, in joining Iran in this in this effort. So the detail will be important, but I think it's it's signalling a significant shift in the region.、Mm. Well, then.、Um 
Doctor, one more question before we let you go. How much changes do you think this、uh, new coalition will bring to the geopolitics in the Middle East, especially about what U.S. calls its leadership in the region, Doctor? Yes, it's, it's、mm. certainly suggesting a, a, a challenge to that. Now, how challenging it is depends on the detail that emerges, but it certainly. Seems to be linked to these other shifts in the region.、Uh, many of the countries in the region are seeing that there's a, a great deal of fluidity in the, in the relations there. That the the pretensions of the U.S. to dominate the region through what it called the New Middle East more than 15 years ago have evaporated very rapidly. And some of these changes, particularly the the new relations,、uh, We couldn't call it an alliance. You wouldn't necessarily say that Saudi Arabia and Iran are in alliance, but the <laughs> fact that they are cooperating,、mm. that they have normalised their relations, that they are doing some、uh, joint constructive measures like this, is really a substantial change in the region, and, and it, it suggests that the countries of the region are going to、uh, more seriously engage within the region rather than look to outside players to. To dominate the region.、Mm, certainly, you know this.、Uh, there's a lot、uh, of things going on in the Middle East, and we'll certainly keep an eye on that. Thank you. That was Dr. Tim Anderson, Director of Center for Counter Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Oil prices have jumped after Saudi Arabia announced it would cut production by another one million barrels per day. This comes as the OPEC Plus alliance of major oil-producing countries faces flagging oil prices and a looming supply glut. Saudi Energy Minister said the reduction can be extended. The decision came after the alliance met at the OPEC headquarters in Vienna. The rest of the OPEC Plus oil producers agreed to extend earlier cuts in supply through the end of 2024 by a further 1.4 million barrels per day. Joanne Plechberger has more from Vienna. After a six-hour delay, OPEC and its allies are reported to have agreed a deal whereby OPEC leader Saudi Arabia will make new voluntary cuts. If it is a real production cut, then the impact could be big. But if it's just a covert way to reallocate quotas with no immediate impact on total output levels, then the market will treat it as it is. But why cut production in the first place? It is first and foremost an admission that demand into 2023 will not be as strong as most analysts anticipated. OPEC Plus, which includes allies such as Russia, pumps around 40% of the world's crude, meaning its policy decisions can have a major impact on oil prices. However, it took quite a while for OPEC Plus energy ministers to agree on a final decision. After a delayed start, it was difficult for OPEC's most influential members to persuade underproducing African countries to establish realistic output targets. Reuters sources say this newest output cut will be added to already existing cuts of over three million barrels per day. Now, for more on this, we're joined by Dr. He Wenping. She's Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you, Dr. He, for joining us. It's great to have you back on the show. Hi, hi. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. He, so how do you look at、uh, the slow market demand of oil in the past few months, and you know this?、Uh, um, let's say sluggish oil price.、Um, what, what, what are the backgrounds? Well, I think it's very clear how because the world economy remain on the very low level,、mm. uh, because all those the big background those、uh, elements、uh, remain unchanged. For example, uh, like uh, this uh, Ukraine, uh, this uh, crisis remain there, and、uh, not seeing any hope、uh, for the peaceful settlement,、uh, peaceful solution.、Uh, even a lot of talking saying we'll make a, uh, even this uh, new attack from Ukraine side or whatever. So this is the biggest background, and the second also you see the 
uh, like all those uh, emerging economy, like uh, all the global economy, also facing a great challenge. Uh, even the first quarter of China's uh, this GDP growth rate uh, wasn't that high as some people expected uh, mm-hmm. after China opened up. And also India, uh, not mention Brazil, and also the Russia, of course, uh, they are, fell in the, in the war. And even we look about those uh, leading uh, developed economy like the U.S., they also suffer from uh, those inflation and also this uh, like uh, debt ceiling. Uh, those things have been parked there for quite a long time. So in one word, the world economy remains uh, in the trouble. Mm. And plus, yeah, Africa was uh, also facing with those uh, uh, three crises, food mm. crisis, fuel crisis. So in all, this uh, oil demanding side uh, remains very low. Mm. Now, also, Doctor, uh, what do you think are the main considerations by Saudi Arabia and other OPEC members to continue with this, these cuts? I think the main consideration from them are this uh, OPEC plus. Of course, the common uh, objective is to keep the oil prices as high as possible. <laughs> uh, if, because now it's dropped from uh, the past ceiling, almost like 134 mm. uh, this, uh, dollar per barrel. Uh, but then quickly dropped even as low as $75 per barrel. So it's, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, no longer not tolerable by OPEC, like Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia now is eyes on this uh, uh, 2035, uh, this uh, mission. They need money. They need uh, all those income revenue from the oil. So that is why they want to hold on uh, this uh, oil price uh, to reback uh, like to more than 100 dollar per barrel. Uh, that is the goal. I think this goal has been shared uh, by all those countries, uh, either uh, OPEC member or non-OPEC member. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to, uh, you know, using uh, this way, like cut uh, output and then to hold on uh, this oil price at a very high level. Mm. Doctor, how do you think this cut will play into the oil market in the coming months? Well, it shows its power. You see, mm. over the, uh, very quickly, you can see those uh, stock markets has already uh, come as a very uh, positive response. Uh, to, uh, of course, positive response is to meet uh, the Saudi Arabia, the OPEC country, and the, the oil producing country, their demand. Mm. Uh, because oil price is immediately up. Uh, you see, this uh, quickly uh, come out with this, uh, uh, this result. But uh, if we look about in a general picture, like a world economy as a whole, or if you take into consideration about all those majority, those non-oil producing countries, for them, of course, this is not good news for them. Mm. Uh, Even I heard uh, some talking saying, now this is time to dismantle uh, this uh, oil Qatar, Uh, saying this uh, OPEC Mm. can be uh, regarded as oil Qatar. Uh, they are just uh, taking into their own interest into consideration. Uh, they are not taking into the global economy, uh, this general picture, into their consideration. So uh, many, many of those criticisms, uh, these all uh, opinions also show up again. So uh, that means, uh, at least if you look about another side of this uh, coin, mm-hmm. uh, you will see for this global economy, uh, of course, it's not that uh, uh, totally saying this is a positive news. Mm. For all of those countries, especially for those countries that need to import uh, lots of oil, uh, just fuel for their economy, mm. which means they are added more uh, those uh, budget, uh, those right. burden. Indeed, we'll see how these cuts will influence uh, the market fluctuations. But thank you. That was Dr. He Wenping at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. Well, to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.